we talked about the term elect, and then we look, began to look at how those chosen children of God, those sheep of God, are made that way. And interestingly, there's no way that you can force man or something that man does into this particular verse. It's very concise. It's very simple. And the first thing he gives is that we are elect, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God. And as I've told you, that word means prognosis. And the prognosis, because God has foreknown us, is good. And then it says, by sanctification of the Spirit, which we talked about last time, those various terminologies for the same thing through the Scripture, quickening, resurrection, coming to Jesus in a vital new birth sense, not coming to Him in the form of discipleship, but coming to Him in the new birth, God drawing you to Him. It's a creation. It's called God writing the law, His law in your heart. It's compared to a washing in Titus 3. It's compared to the, a birth, the new birth in John 3. And then he describes it as being like the wind. And ultimately, all elect of God, all children of God are born again the exact same way. It's by the sovereign work of the Spirit. And if you remember, all of those things we uh, covered are um, actions that have to be uh, taken upon an individual from the outside. In other words, it's nothing that anybody can do from within. You can't resurrect yourself. You can't quicken yourself. You can't come to Jesus in your dead, sinful nature by yourself. You can't create yourself. You can't write anything in your heart. Uh, you can't wash yourself in regeneration, regeneration to make alive again. And you can't give birth to yourself. And those are basically, there, there may be a few more. There are, there are a few more, but those are the primary ways in which the new birth is described. And not one of those ways, in not a single one of those ways, can you do anything to cause that to come to pass. It's all an outside force acting upon the child of God. Now, if you've been an old Baptist for most of your life, or for some of your life, some of you for all of your life, uh, it just seems so simple whenever we look at it. I mean, it just seems like anybody should be able to see that that is so simple and it's all glory to God. But it's just not that way. Many children of God have been taught a completely different uh, a way uh, in their life. And as Brother Sonny Powell said, we often quote him, uh, he said that it's harder to unteach someone than it is to teach them. Some of you here in the church have grown up in the church and you think, I just don't see how somebody couldn't see this. It's because you've heard it your whole life. And then there's other people that come up under other type of teaching and they would say the same thing about what they've learned. They'd say, well, I just don't see how anybody can see it any other way. You, know, you, you accept Christ to go to heaven. You let him in your heart. You know, it says in the Bible that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. It does say that, but it's not talking about the heart. But see, we just take those things for granted, especially if you've come up in it. I grew up in the truth. I grew up believing a lot of these things. And so it, it takes a while to get the understanding untangled in the mind of a child of God. And I'm telling you this as those I'm speaking directly to those that have grown up in the church. So you'll be patient with people that you interact with. OK, I didn't I didn't learn that till you know, I was in my 20s. <laughs> I'd get mad at people because they didn't understand it. So thank God the Lord um, humbled me so that I would know we need to be patient. Now, if if you uh, have come from a different teaching and you're trying to untangle that, you need patience, too. See? But I'm telling you this, maybe you've tried to untangle a cord or untangled barbed wire or 
untangle some of these fetched little earbuds, you know, they get tang- those things get tangled up worse than uh, barbed wire. Uh, just keep working at it, and you'll finally get it untangled. You will. But in this scenario, the Scripture will help you untangle it, see? Because the Scripture will never contradict. None of those terms about the new birth contradict. Now, and it's very simple to say, everybody from the infant in the womb to the old man to everyone in between, all points in between, they're all born again the same way. That is very consistent, is it not? And that's what Jesus said. It's not what Brother Tim said. Jesus said, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So tonight... We come to the next one, which is uh, very tangible, very touchable. I mean, the, they, they all are. I've told you it's kind of hard to sometimes wrap your mind around before the foundation of the world because we weren't there. We haven't seen what God looked like in His glory before the foundation of the world. And it's a, a little easier to wrap your mind around the new birth because it happens in your heart and you feel it and it confirms it in the Word of God and, and you know you know when your emotions are are just electrified by the Spirit of God. That's a special thing. And you know when you feel repentant, you know, through the Spirit of God, that's a special thing. And I think this is very tangible, where it says, we are elect also unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you this. Some men have tried to work man into that part of this verse right there, that the obedience is ours. But I'm telling you, the context doesn't bear it out. It doesn't work. It is not our obedience. And by the way, that would contradict with a thousand other verses, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, th- there, you see, men will try to squeeze that in, but it just won't work. This is squarely on the shoulders of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I remember growing up and not really... Because I heard a lot of doctrinal sermons. I didn't hear a, a whole lot of... I heard a few pictorial sermons, you know, things that gave us pictures of Christ and pictures of things. Uh, But I'm going to tell you, I I have had some of the greatest moments with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through men of God preaching about the scenes of the passion of Christ, the scenes of things that Christ did. I've had some of the greatest moments in my life and and tangible moments of I can see it. I can just almost taste it. I could taste it. (laughs) And that's what we have tonight. Notice also, I want to spend just a brief, brief moment on this, this primary preposition, unto. Notice it says, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Now, I'm not, I, took, I did, I know how to speak a little English, and I was an English major, but I was a literature major, so I, I still have a little trouble with, with the King's English, but I know that I've heard it said that if the subject, noun, and verb are the bricks of a sentence, then the preposition is the mortar of the sentence that connects everything together. And I want you to notice that it's very important to understand what, what's being said here. This word unto expresses how an action is completed. And I looked up this word unto and how many times it occurs, like 1,500 times. And I didn't have time to go through all of them, but I went through a few of them. And it's a very unique word. It's also into at different places, but it has to do with the completion of an action. For example, there's some places uh, where it says, uh, it, it expresses how an action is completed. So the connecting preposition shows us how the elect became the elect. How the Father and the Spirit intersect uh, with the Son. One of the examples that I found 
in the book of Matthew with this preposition is they departed into Egypt. And that was whenever they had to flee down into Egypt. It also, with the wise men, it says they departed into the area of a different way to go back. But it, it, it always carried a picture, an image in my mind. They departed into Egypt. Another place it was they came into the house. You can picture somebody walking in the house. Here is a picture of how we are his children. And it is unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. It's also unto the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of this action, all this connectivity here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it leads to the penultimate event of history up to this point. And the penultimate, the ultimate event, the most important event that has happened in history up to this point. And I say up to this point because there's another one coming. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's more important, but it's going to be the next important event. And that is the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood and, and his resurrection from the grave. That is the most important event, not the past election last week. It's not the most important. The most important event is not what the courts are going to do about the election. There, and we need to be concerned about it. We need to be praying for uh, honesty and truthfulness and all that type of stuff. But the most important event that has ever occurred was the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've, said, I've told you before, this, these three things put together are like a three-legged stool. Y'all maybe have seen, there's not many three-legged stools out there. Most of them are four-legged. But this is like a three-legged stool. And if you take one of the legs away, it all falls. But if you have all of the three legs complete, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's perfect. It stands forever. See? One removed out, they all fall. But if they're all in place, they all stand. And this is about the obedience of Christ. Notice it says that we are elect unto the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about obedience. The word obedience means attentive hearkening. To attentively hearken to something, to, to be in compliance, to submit, to subordinate. You know, we read where through the obedience of one, you know, that God has brought salvation to his people. You want to know what Jesus' thought process was about obedience? You can see that in Philippians. If you want to turn over there to Philippians, I'm using a different Bible tonight, so forgive me if it takes a little bit longer to get there. Uh, Philippians, the second chapter. And we'll look at verse 5 through 8. If I can find Philippians in this Bible. There it is. Philippians 2. And let's look at verse 5. Watch the language now. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is how Christ Jesus thought. He says, I wish I could know the mind of God. Here it is. Exposed to the, uh, to the believer to understand. This is how Jesus thought about what he did. And, this, and God says, I want you to think this way. This is how my son thinks. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's, that's language just simply means that Jesus was equal with God and it was appropriate for him to be equal with God because he is God. But, notice verse 7, the thought process of Jesus was to make himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of sinful uh, in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross notice 
Jesus' thought process. Should be, it should be our thought process. We spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, don't we? I mean, I do. <laughs> Maybe you don't, but I do. You know, I don't want to hurt. I don't want to be unhealthy. I don't want things to be out of place. I want to make sure I, I look at least halfway decent. I want to present myself in a normal way. Uh, I feel a little sensitive right now. I need a haircut. I'm even thinking about that while I'm preaching to you. You know, it's been a while since I had a haircut. <laughs> My hair gets real wavy. So <laughs> I'm thinking about myself. You see, we do a lot of thinking about ourselves. And God understands that. We have to. We have to. We have to think about ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves. But an inordinate amount of thinking about ourselves is inappropriate. And probably me telling you that I'm thinking about myself in the pulpit is probably inappropriate too. But nonetheless, God understands we think about ourselves. And he says, my own son thought about himself. And his thought process about his position as God, as King of kings, Lord of lords, master of the creation, he thought of it and he said, I will step down. I will make myself of no reputation. It would be good for us to think that way. But we're too busy a lot of times thinking about, well, you know, I want people to respect me. I want people to treat me like I should. I deserve to be treated. We think things like that. Jesus didn't think that way. Jesus didn't think that way. He made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant. See, remember when Jesus said, I came not to, to be ministered to. I came to minister. He said, that's the way the kingdom works. He said, that's the way my kingdom works. Is he that is the greatest among you has got to think this way. You've got to think that it's not about me being ministered to. It's about me ministering to others. You know, when you have, when, when you have one person in a church that thinks that way, it can bring revival to that church. When you have half of the people in a church that think that way, it can continue revival and bring revival. When you think about having all of the people in a church thinking that way, I'm here to serve. I'm not here to be served. That's a beautiful thing. I believe there are some, you said it's impossible. Well, I believe the church at Philadelphia was that way. They didn't, God did not condemn them at all. And by the way, Philadelphia means city of brotherly love. That was an appropriately named church, wasn't it? Philadelphia Baptist Church. <laughs> and we're not talking about Pennsylvania. We're talking about... Over there and uh, way over there, far away and in the Middle East. So you see, Jesus said, I will make myself of no reputation. I will take upon me the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. He was man and God. And being found in fashion as a man, he's not through yet. <laughs> Whenever he came to age, he, he grew up even when he was in his you know, 12 years old and, and all points in between. It says that he was found in fashion of, as a man and he humbled himself. And not only that, when he turned 30 years old and began his ministry and then at 33 and a half or 33 some odd years old, it says that he was so obedient that he was even obedient unto death. <laughs> even the death of the cross. So that's, that's, that's not good, right? Well, look, keep reading. It is good because that's your salvation. And he says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And praise be to God, that right there will happen one day at the next greatest event when the Lord comes back. There won't be any naysayers. There won't be any dissenters. There will only be the wicked saying, He is the Lord. <laughs> and there'll be the righteous saying, 
He is our Lord. Isn't that great? (laughs) So you see, this is Jesus' thought process and his experience was to experience suffering. Hebrews 5 and 8, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. But some of you sons and some of you daughters might be saying, Yeah, I can identify with that. Oh, I've suffered at the hands of my father. I've had to chop wood. I've had to, you know... Uh, we ain't had to pick cotton, that's for sure. You get it, Brother Furman was here, he had to. Uh, I've suffered, I've had to do my chores. I've had to, oh, make up my bed. I've had to fold my clothes and turn my socks right. Oh, it's just suffering, suffering. I've learned obedience through the suffering that I've experienced in this life. That's not what this is talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is somebody who was always right and never wrong, being wronged and treated wrongfully and mistreated for always being right and never being wrong. And not only that, being merciful and just, <laughs> you know? See, he learned that you say, well, God didn't have to learn anything. Well, I understand that in one sense. He knows everything. But we cannot deny that when he took on flesh, that was a different experience for even God. See, because he hadn't taken on flesh before. So he experienced some things when he took on flesh that he'd never experienced before. And praise be to God, he never experienced it again. And it says that he was obedient. It says we are saved by that obedience. Many denominations today will tell you, well, it's your obedience and you're holding on the way and you're doing it. And we need to be obedient and we need to hold on the way and we need to disciple ourselves. That's not, how, that's not what punches your ticket to heaven. <laughs> it's Christ that punches your ticket to heaven. And not only just his obedience and his death, but notice it also required the shedding of blood. Now you think about that now. They, the, the, the writer Peter puts that in there. He could have just said, well, the obedience of Christ. Well, and we know, we know what that entails. But, you know, on one hand, you think, well, Christ could have been obedient and done it a different way. But no, it was required that he be obedient unto death and his blood be shed. That's a big subject, too, by the way. We'll try to touch on a couple of little things about it tonight because that's all the time we have. But it says the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, whenever Christ shed his blood in the covenant of redemption, it, it was God sprinkling that shed blood upon the elect of God. As a matter of fact, it says that, that in the book of Hebrews, it speaks of your conscience being sprinkled. <laughs> you know, sprinkled uh, with uh, the, the Holy Spirit, which is Christ, which is, involves His blood, you see? So you, you get the blood of Christ sprinkled on you because Jesus Christ shed His blood. Hebrews 9 and 19, it's, it tells about Moses doing this in the Old Covenant. It says that after Moses prepared everything and got everything ready, and the first time they were going to institute everything with the law, it says that he, with the calves and the sheep and the different lambs and things that he killed, he, he mixed it together with a, some kind of mixture that involved hyssop. And I don't know if he, if he had a rag and he just kind of sprinkled it, but it says that he sprinkled the blood. I don't know if he took it in his hands and he just sprinkled the blood on the implements of the sanctuary, of the, temp, of the uh, tabernacle. And that's how he sanctified it or said it was sanctified by blood. Also, Moses did that in Hebrews 11 and 28, did he not? Whenever it says, by faith, Moses kept the Passover. What did he do? He took the blood of that lamb mixed with a little hyssop, which is kind of sticky. And he takes it with stick and he puts it on one side of the doorpost, other side of the doorpost above, which makes a cross, by the way. You see, it was blood. 
Look at where we're reading here tonight in 1 Peter. Just a, a few verses on down from 1 Peter where our text is. And notice this. It says in uh, verse 18, very, very pointed. 1 Peter 1 and 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ... As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now watch what he says. Who by him, by Christ, we do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. So what should your, some people have faith in their faith and, you know, their faith in their decision, faith in their uh, kicking in, you know, salvation. I want you to know your faith should be in God. Your trust should be in God. If you feel his spirit, if you feel his presence, it's because he alone has caused you to feel that and your trust should be in. That's why so many people rededicate and re give their life and so forth and so on, because they start doubting their decision and see our, our decision it's not even a decision of salvation. It's really a decision of discipleship. But when it comes to God, God made the decision, you see? And so our faith and our hope and our trust should be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. You see Peter's conclusion? If you see these things and you see what God has done and that His blood has been applied to you, love one another with a pure heart fervently. I'm telling you now, that that is a... Beautiful understanding of how to love one another in the way that Christ loved us. You know, I, when I was studying this, I was thinking, you know, we have a bloody religion, do we not? We have a bloody belief. It takes blood to save us. It took the blood of Christ. It made me think of Zipporah, who was uh, Moses' wife. You know, after they had their little domestic uh, issues there near the end when she was being resistant to what God had told Moses to do, and she finally wound up... She finally, not willingly, but she reluctantly gave in and did what God had said that, that, that must be done. And she goes to Moses and she said, Thou art a surely a bloody husband, art thou to me? You know, and then she said it again. She said it twice. She said, Thou art a bloody husband to me because they'd had to perform surgery, you know, on those boys or on that boy. You see, it's a bloody religion that we have. You don't ever want to get away from the blood. You know, blood has a unique look. It has a unique texture. You know, you don't ever want to get away from the fact that we're saved by the blood of Christ. You don't want to take that out of any songs. You don't want to look at, you say, well, that's kind of gross. You know, I'm not a real medical minded person. Neither am I, but we don't want to get away from the blood of Christ. You see, our salvation is written in a history of blood from Abel who was murdered. And that's the first place that blood occurs in the scripture, by the way. It says that God cried out to, uh, God said to Cain, he said, thy brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, it was the blood of Abel, that righteous man that was shed because he sacrificed what God said for him to sacrifice. And, and God said, his blood cries out for me, to me from the ground. And did you know that the blood of Christ speaks even better things than Abel? Because the blood of Abel spoke for vengeance. You know, somebody needs to avenge Abel because he's been murdered by his own brother. That's what Abel's blood says from the ground. Vengeance. And the blood of Christ speaks better things because it cries out mercy from the ground. You see? That's the blood of Christ. Aren't you glad that it cries out mercy? Moving along. You see, even in Leviticus it said that the life is in the blood. You don't have any blood, you're not going to live. And the Lord, it says that he had innocent blood. Did you know that Judas Iscariot declared that in Matthew 27 and 4? 
He came in and he took the 30 pieces of silver, which is all that our Lord was worth to him, and he cast it down in the temple. Can y'all picture that? Those 30 pieces of silver. He goes into the temple. You know, he, he is, this man Judas is judged by what he has done, and he realizes his, he's judged. So he goes in the temple, he casts down the money. He says, I have betrayed the innocent blood. Let me tell you, that was not a spiritual confession. It was a declaration of his own filthy depravity. You see, he cast down the money in front of the Pharisees. He says, I betrayed the innocent blood. See that? And they took that money. This is crazy. They took that money. They said, we can't touch this. We can't use this. We can't put it in the treasury. (laughs) They couldn't even put the money that was used to betray Jesus in the treasury. Well, I wonder where they got it from. They got it out of the treasury, but they wouldn't put it back in. And so they said, this is the price of blood. He said, I betrayed the innocent blood. They said, this is the price of blood. Judas goes and hangs himself. And so what they did with that money, they bought a field (laughs) to bury homeless and strangers in. I've thought about that field. I don't know where it is today, but isn't it going to be amazing that that field that was purchased with the betrayal price of Jesus Christ's blood, and they called it the field of blood after the blood of Jesus, that innocent man. (laughs) I've thought, you know, isn't it going to be amazing whenever that very field that they purchased with the price that betrayed him, the Lord's going to call one day and the trumpet's going to sound. And even those strangers and those homeless people that have been long forgotten and nobody knows who they are, where they are, or when they were buried, or who they were when they were buried, they're going to come come forth beautiful, shining, and glorious from that field of blood. (laughs) Pilate even said... Uh, Pilate stood before the people of Israel and this was a very controversial scene that made it into some of the editions of a movie that was made years ago by Mel Gibson but some of it was edited in certain places but this one scene was where Pilate washes his hands with water and he says that I am uh, free of the innocent blood of this just person you see Jesus wasn't they couldn't even find him guilty and what did the people of Israel say the Jews looked at him and they said his blood be upon us oh what a judgment came down upon them for the blood of Christ now listen lest you and I should think well I'd have been a good Jew I wouldn't have done that if I'd have been back then oh surely you would have and surely I would have you say well if I hadn't have been among those Pharisees I'd have been with the apostles and I'd have been standing right there by Peter who denied him three times you see, the blood of Christ comes down upon all of us. Aren't you glad that for His children it comes down in mercy? Now, think about the number of times that they drew blood from Jesus. The best I can tell, the best I can see from reading, and just using my common sense, is the first blood that was drawn from Jesus in His entire life was when they took the crown of thorns and they mashed it down on His head. That's the first blood. The best I can tell, the last blood that was was drawn from Jesus was after he was dead. When they were coming to break the legs of the other men so they would go ahead and die. And they came to Jesus, he was already expired because he had said, It is finished. And Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And they took a javelin and they jabbed him in the side to see if he was dead. And it says that blood and water flowed out. And of course, all in between there, you had beatings and lashes Nails in the hand, nails in the feet. You see, that's precious blood right there. There's never been blood like that in the history of the world. Never been blood like that. Now, let's close out tonight in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. <laughs> I love this verse, this, these few verses here. It's also a song in our songbook that 
First time I ever heard the song led, it was Elder Ricky Harker. I've still got it on tape somewhere. And it, it shook me to the core, especially with Brother Ricky leading him with his voice, you know. <laughs> but in, in Isaiah 63, I want you to listen to this because this is talking about the blood of Christ. Listen, he says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness mighty to save? Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat? And then the response is, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now let's get this picture here. Edom was also the area of Esau, and it was always considered to be the land of the enemy. So can y'all picture that? You're over there in the Middle East and you look up and you see this traveler coming and he's walking and he's determined. He's, he's got a set focus in his march and his walk. And as he gets closer, you begin, you begin to see this is a determined soldier. This is a captain. This is a general. This is a man not to be trifled with. He said, who is this that comes from far? From Edom. Edom, the land of the enemy. Who is this that comes from the land of the enemy? And his, his garments are dyed. What have they died with? What is, what is the deal with this man? He's, and he, he says that he's traveling in the greatness of his strength. He's a determined man. Uh, you might say that he, he is bowed. He is one that, that has, a, has vengeance in his eyes. And his, his garments are stained with blood. And the question is, who is this man? And the answer is, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, what is this that's on your clothes? Why are you red in your apparel? Why do your garments look like those that is tread, tread the wine vat? And we don't know a whole lot about that, although maybe you've seen some YouTube videos or could look at some. But if you uh, go and look at someone treading the wine vat, they put those grapes in there and they have a drain coming off of it and they just stand there and they just march in the wine press, pressing out the grapes, pressing down the grapes. It's a very violent thing. Now, I'm not saying the person's angry when they do it, but it's something that it has to be violently, the juice has to be violently taken from those grapes they don't want to give up their juice and this is symbolic here he says it looks like somebody has tread the wine vat they have tread the wine press and the the answer by the lord jesus christ says i have trodden the wine press alone and and we read elsewhere that it says that he tread the wine press of the wrath of god you understand that as jesus was there on the cross and he's bleeding and he's suffering he is treading the wine press of the wrath of god he is pressing out his own blood and he's also pressing out the blood of the wicked and he's also pressing out the tainted blood that you have as an elect of god he's pressing out the blood and he's suffering under the wrath of god (laughs) it's the wine press of the wrath of god It's a powerful man here. You don't trifle with this man. This is the same man, I believe, that whenever Joshua looked up there as he was about to go to battle uh, at Jericho, as he was about to enter into the campaign to take the promised land, and there's Joshua probably meditating about how he was going to take Jericho, how the Lord was going to lead him to take him. And a man comes upon him, and that man is armed with his sword drawn, and uh, old Joshua jumps up, but he doesn't back up. He goes to that man, and he says, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? And that's where he gives that answer and he says nay he says neither but i am the captain of the lord of hosts whose side are you on joshua (laughs) this is that same man only at that time i don't believe that he had the blood stains on him but here isaiah sees 
He has come from treading the winepress of the wrath of God. And He has come from triumphing over all of the enemies of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is our Savior. He is, he is, a, he is a man's man, if there ever was a man's man. <laughs> And he is the kindest of all husbands, if there ever was a kind husband to a wife. He is everything. He's everything we ought to desire to be. And so much that we will never, ever be able to be. And he says, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Have you ever, there's two or three times in my life. Two or three times where I have in my heart and in my emotions, and, and I would say in righteousness, in, in spiritual righteousness, there's two or three times where I have felt the Spirit of God. I, it's sometimes preaching. I felt it a couple times, giving some closing statements and some battles that we had been in in a lawsuit, because I believed with every fiber of my being that what we were doing was right. And that I believed with every fiber of my being that God was blessing us in what we were doing. And it was right. And I have felt victory before victory even came. You understand what I'm saying? You know, it, it could be, you know, if you like sports, you know, it could be you're down by three points and the drive is just going down one pass, one run. I mean, you just, we're fixing to take this thing. You know, have you ever felt that? You, 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 and maybe you ladies that have played some kind of sports, or if you've just ever felt that victorious taste in your mouth, <laughs> that's a great thing. You know, no matter what happens, no matter the outcome, I taste victory. That's a great way to feel. And in an incredibly greater way, this man with his sword and his, his blood-stained garment he says, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He is fired up. He's feeling it emotionally. He's feeling it in his spirit. He's feeling it in the work that he has just accomplished because he has just tread the wine press and no enemy, no foe could stand before him. Isn't it also interesting that he is by himself? <laughs> he doesn't have legions of people following him. As a matter of fact, it says he looked and there was none to help, verse 5. And he says he wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, my Mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus Christ, when He's on the cross, yes, He was overflowing with mercy, and He was overflowing, but there was fury there too. And it was the fury of God. It was the anger of God towards the, the sin of man, towards your sin, and towards my sin, and towards the wicked. And whenever God went there to the cross, He had fury in mind, and only one could tread the winepress of that fury and shed His blood and make it sufficient to where, the, where God in heaven, the Father, would be satisfied. And that is this man right here who has come from the land of the enemy, who has come from Edom, who's come from Basra, and he is the one that speaks in righteousness, and he's mighty to save. And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? 
And of the people, there was none with me. Some of you might win a game or some of you might win a case or some of you might win something and say, we did this and we all came together and we rallied and we were on the rally and we won because of this rally and we came together and it was wonderful. Not Jesus. Jesus said, I had no one with me. I had nobody to back me up. I didn't even call in the legions of angels that were there available to me. He says, there was none to help me. And he says, I did it myself alone. Who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? Only the Lord. He says, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. It's kind of a gruesome sight, isn't it? He's probably got blood sprinkled on his face, blood on his garments, sword in hand. He's just marching. (laughs) He said, what's he marching towards? Well, ultimately, ultimately he's marching to get on his horse. One of these days, It says in the book of Revelation that when they beheld him, it says that I can't find it because I said a different. I know exactly where it is in my Bible, but I can't find it in this Bible. But I'll just try to quote it for you. It says that John looked and he beheld on a white horse a man whose name was King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he had a vesture that was dipped in blood. It's the same guy. He just got on his horse. And that's. The penultimate, the next penultimate moment that is coming. Whenever the one who was obedient, the one who shed his blood alone with no help from you, no help from me, no help from anyone. He'll come back. And many will say, who is this that comes from far? You will not say that. You will say, it is my savior. He's come to get me. The wicked will call for the rocks to fall upon them and hide in the caves of the earth. For the day of judgment has come. Vengeance is in his heart, he says. The blood of Abel will be avenged. But for you, it will just be a sweet, sweet gathering. He won't come here with vengeance in his heart for you. He'll come here with love. As a man going to marry his bride... You've ever heard the, well, he rode in on a white horse and swept me off my feet. There it is right there. He's going to ride in like on a white horse, like the greatest prince, the greatest king that you've ever seen. And he's going to say, come on, sweep you off your feet. Sweep you away to heaven where you'll be with him forever. The text is elect, chosen, According to, the fore, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I fully intended to stop at 10 minutes till tonight. But I'm just going to be honest with you. We get talking about Jesus and this incredible price that He paid, the blood of Christ. Sometimes it's hard to stop. Who is this that comes from far with His garments dipped in blood? Strong, triumphant traveler. Is He man or is He God? I that reign in righteousness, Son of God and man I am, mighty to redeem your race. Jesus is your Savior's name.